0: This is The Interchange Recharged, a Wood Mackenzie production. I'm David Miller. The shift to renewable energy is creating a huge demand for skilled workers. As we continue the rollout of renewable energy infrastructure, the energy sector is changing fast. By 2050, the renewable energy industry could provide over 14 million new jobs. But there's a catch. We need people with the right skills. Right now, we're short on experts in solar and wind tech battery storage, and smart grids. The World Economic Forum says energy jobs are getting more complex and tech-focused, which means we need a workforce that's quick to adapt and tech-savvy. So retraining workers from the declining fossil fuel industry is crucial. They need new skills to join the growing renewable sector. For example, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics says jobs for solar panel installers and wind turbine technicians will skyrocket from 2019 to 2029. But it's not just about technical know-how. The whole way we make, manage, and use energy is changing. Governments and industry leaders have to figure out how we can teach these new skills in a way that's fair and reaches everyone. This raises an important question. How could we quickly roll out renewable energy tech while making sure we're preparing a skilled workforce for the future? To answer this, I'm joined by Kaylee Andrews, energy analyst and modeler at the International Energy Agency. In November last year, the IEA published its second World Energy Employment Report, which tracks the evolution of the energy workforce from pre-COVID pandemic through the global energy crisis to today. So Kaylee, welcome.
1: Thank you, David.
0: So tell us a little bit about this report. What are some of the key takeaways?
1: Yeah, great. At the IEA, we started publishing the World Energy Employment Report two years ago, the goal of which is to provide a comprehensive global assessment, sort of a benchmark of energy employment today, and we model to the future to 2030 in a few different scenarios. And the idea is that we're trying to give policymakers and other various stakeholders in the energy industry the ability to better plan for the labor transition that's going to be needed alongside the energy transition. So some of the main findings that came out of the report this year is that there's around 67 million people employed in the energy industry worldwide, as we define it, which includes upstream raw materials extraction, power generation... And some downstream industries that are very energy intensive, such as vehicles manufacturing. And there's now, we estimate sometime around 2021, more clean energy workers worldwide than those working with fossil fuels and related technologies, which is a big shift, not something we saw before the pandemic. And really, what we're going to talk about today, and which was something that was a main takeaway from the report, is that we're seeing skills shortages and shortages of skilled labor beginning to emerge as a bottleneck to delivering the targets and outcomes we want from the energy transition already. And we expect this to only become a bigger problem in the future as we progress, as the energy transition, especially building out clean energy installations, is going to require a massive amount of skilled labor that we just don't have yet. So we looked into where those labor shortages are most prominent, which is most parts of the world, and what we can do about ameliorating them to make sure that labor doesn't become a big barrier to delivering the energy transition.
0: Yeah, I mean, with new technologies being developed every day, I mean, there's somewhat of a gold rush to develop the winning technology as a piece of the energy transition. So it's clearly that there's a a whole host of reskilling that needs to take place in the labor force. So what can we do and, and how can we help move it along to make sure that we deliver what's needed?
1: As I said, the momentum is there. Clean energy is already the driving force behind energy job growth in pretty much all regions, but meeting 2030 targets in particular will mean attracting new people to the energy workforce, training them as well as reskilling existing energy workers. And this is all going to require a great degree of foresight as to the geographies and sectors in which these workers will be needed, what skills they'll need and in what quantities. Obviously, this is going to require cooperation and a lot of planning from policymakers, energy companies, as well as labor representation and education. Ultimately, I think we can get it down to a combination of market incentives and especially political will are going to be essential to delivering the workforce that we're going to need in every country. We don't think it's really going to be possible for governments to plan to rely on offshoring or even importing labor as most uh, energy jobs are going to be created where the actual clean energy assets are being built. So it's definitely the case that a sufficiently large and skilled local workforce is going to be needed to be cultivated in every region. So... I'd say probably one of the most immediately important steps that governments need to take to kickstart the building of the skilled workforce for the energy transition is to put in place clear policies that will drive demand for clean technologies. This obviously acts as a signal for the companies and the current energy workforce, as well as new workforce entrants, that pursuing a career relevant to the energy transition is a safe bet. Obviously, nobody wants to spend their time and money training for a career where they're not sure if it's even going to continue to exist or to be a stable source of work. And in countries where there's been policy waffling or reversals, for example, with nuclear power in France or with the adoption of heat pumps for residential heating in the UK, we're already seeing skill shortages there impeding the transition in those areas. That's not to say that those shortages don't exist elsewhere where there is clear policy, but there's a definite clear link to be drawn between decisive policy and the accrual of a skilled workforce.
0: And you're right on the sustained momentum, because for petroleum engineers, you can always see where there was a cycle downturn, right? Because the number of petroleum engineers coming out of college, there's always a gap because when there's a downturn, you're not graduating as many. And so when you look at a company's workforce, you always see these gaps and you can tie it back to the college, you know, when they were in college and that was a, for the gaps, that was a downturn during that time.
1: Precisely. We see a similar thing in some nuclear industries, I think. In France, for example, actually in much of the Western nuclear industry, there was a bit of a hiring gap between the initial build out of nuclear energy fleets in the 70s and 80s. And then for a couple decades, we were just coasting on those and there was no new hiring. So now in a lot of countries where they're looking to expand their nuclear fleets once again, they're finding that they've lost not only a lot of that knowledge and expertise, but that there's a generational gap. So there's a lot of difficulty with skills continuity and ensuring that the knowledge is passed down, which obviously we've seen the negative effects of that in comparing the new nuclear new builds in France or the U.S. compared with places where they've had very clear continuous policy like China, for example.
0: And the report shows, you know, job growth and opportunities with the energy transition. And now that's not just reskilling some existing energy workers into new technologies and roles. I mean this is overall addition of new jobs related to energy, but particularly focused on energy transition, right?
1: Definitely. That's why I think we can safely say that the conversation around jobs and the energy transition was originally very concerned with the traditional dialogue about job losses, especially in fossil fuel communities, which obviously remains hugely relevant. But I think the conversation is increasingly shifting towards skilling and labor shortages, because, as you said, the energy transition is already creating millions of jobs I mentioned that clean energy has already surpassed fossil fuels to be the biggest source of job growth. In fact, we can see that the shift towards clean energy is the reason that the energy sector has more jobs today than it did before the pandemic, which is not the case everywhere else, as I'm sure you're aware. If I'm correct, energy employment grew by around 5%, we say in the report, between 2019 and 2022, whereas economy-wide employment remained around 1% lower in 2022 compared to before the pandemic. And on a net basis, that's already entirely thanks to the shift towards clean energy. Fossil fuel-related employment fell over that period, while clean energy jobs jumped around 15%.
0: And so some of the factors, like you had mentioned, is there's the momentum factor for getting this done. There's the support from governments and regulatory agencies for it. So beyond that, with getting the excitement and the support about the job growth and the opportunities that are for these workers, I mean, how do we put that in practice to implement the reskilling of some of these workers to be able to give them the opportunity to partake in the opportunity presented in the energy transition?
1: Yeah, great question. As you said earlier, it's obviously not just going to be the people already working in the energy sector. We're facing this challenge of cultivating a skilled workforce to deal with clean technologies, in many cases, emerging technologies where the workforce is being built almost from scratch. So it's true that probably our biggest asset here is the existing energy workforce, especially in declining industries, typically related to fossil fuels. Besides the obvious moral imperative to make sure that these people aren't just abandoned in the energy transition, to make sure they're compensated or offered retraining, it would also be very unwise to neglect these workers. They're our most precious resource. Many fossil fuel workers already have the skills and specializations that are desperately needed in a lot of new clean energy roles. We can look to oil and gas workers, for example, that have some skills needed in bioenergy, carbon capture, hydrogen, geothermal, etc. So we have some policies in place dealing with this already. There's always a lot of talk about skills transfer, but we can look to, for example, the UK's North Sea Transition deal as an example of an active political move that includes plans to shift personnel from the oil and gas industry to offshore wind. But as I said earlier, it's really uh, incentives that are everything here. Uh, We need to make sure that people are incentivized to join the energy industry or to shift to clean energy sectors. So what we need to prioritize there is making sure that the workers themselves are not bearing the onus of reskilling. Not just because it's unfair, but because it would impede progress. Today, unfortunately, for the transition workers in fossil fuel, well-established sectors, especially oil and gas, have some of the highest paid jobs, not just in energy, but in the entire economy. And the oil and gas workforce in particular is already highly sought after by many adjacent sectors because they tend to be extremely highly skilled and mobile. So we can see why an oil and gas worker, especially when late in their career, who's accustomed to a certain salary, might be reluctant to shift to work in offshore wind, for example, where they'd have to undergo retraining and probably make less money. But still, compensation in the energy sector is generally higher than in similar occupations in the broader economy mostly because of the greater degree of specialization required. Solar PV installers for example can earn anywhere from 15 to 40 percent more than comparable occupations like roofers or telecom installers that require comparable skills. So for these workers from adjacent industries where we're looking at how we can bring them into the energy transition we can break it down into a relatively simple equation. The wage premium needs to be sufficiently high to incentivize them, to spend the time and money pursuing retraining. Not that there's not other factors in play, especially among the younger generation. Climate concerns are playing an increasing role in choosing careers. But targeting these workers in related occupations specifically can really reduce the skilling burden because it becomes a question of upskilling or reskilling, as we've been discussing, rather than just skilling. For example, it can take less than a week for a plumber or a gas boiler worker to qualify as a heat pump engineer, but newcomers would require years of training. That being said, the time and money spent reskilling can still outweigh the potential wage premium. Many of these workers are self-employed, and the time spent training comes at the cost of missed work and therefore missed wages. So, as I said, it's really a combination of market incentives and political will that will get the job done. We can look, as an example, to the highly publicized shortage of uh, truck or lorry drivers in the U.K. as the U.K. came out of the COVID lockdowns. And in the end, it was a combination of market incentives, a.k.a. employers raising wages, and political will, a.k.a. the government covering the cost of training that eventually ameliorated the shortage. And I think the same thing will be true of the energy transition.
0: Yeah, I think that's critical, that last piece, you know, on the incentives and the pay for it. Because if you've got somebody in in the legacy energy industry that's been working at 10 years, makes a comfortable salary, is good at what they do, and tell them to retrain, oh, by the way, you're going to, even if you're making a comparable salary with more future opportunity, but if they have to go pay for that. Sometimes it's like going back to school. I mean, once people enter the workforce for more than five or or many years after that, going back to getting a graduate degree to enhance it is always a little bit difficult because there's the money involved. So being able to overcome that will get more interest from people to pursue these opportunities in the other areas. So something we've started to talk a lot about in the energy space is AI and its impact. And there's a lot of headlines out there these days about what the forecasted impact on jobs is going to be as a result of AI development. Have you factored that into your report? And overall, what do you think the impact of AI could be on this initiative?
1: Yeah, definitely. So we do take into account, of course, our modeling into the future, It's hard to track what will happen exactly with AI and with what pace, but we do consider it when we are making assumptions about productivity and obviously the amount of workers that are needed to deliver a certain megawatt of output. But in my opinion, I don't think we're likely to see a significant portion of the energy workforce displaced by AI anytime in the near future. And that's mostly because most of the jobs created in the energy transition are in medium-skilled, hands-on roles such as installation and fabrication of clean energy assets. The energy transition is going to generate so many jobs in part because it's going to involve the fabrication and construction of thousands of gigawatts more of clean energy assets. And that's not something that obviously can immediately be replaced by AI. I do think, however, that an area that AI could be of significant use in ameliorating the energy transition is something that you just touched on, which is establishing credentials and making it easier for workers with certain skills and trainings to transfer between industries. So we're seeing that some large integrated companies like we could take BP or Total as an example. They're already taking advantage of the overlapping skills demand between fossil fuels and clean energy by transferring workers internally between the two as they need. But many of the workers outside of these large integrated companies in these spaces are contractors or are self-employed. And in most regions, they need external accreditation from some sort of independent body to practice their work. And when those credentials vary or differ between region or industry, We end up having instances where workers are forced to pay hundreds or thousands out of pocket just to be certified for skills they already possess. I think this is a great area with a lot of potential for AI to help things out. In the UK, there's long been discussion, especially among unions and labor representation of establishing a digital skills passport or something similar, which could hypothetically ease the flow of skilled labor between industries or even regions as well as reducing the time and cost burden on workers looking to transfer between industries. There's no doubt that after working in this space for a few years, it's clear that the accreditation landscape is a confusing mess, not just across industries, but across countries, even in blocks with a hypothetical free flow of skilled labor, like the EU, or even in countries, but across states, such as in the US, credentials and skills requirements are different all over the place. And it's really a problem when you have projects like offshore wind that tend to bring a lot of jobs with them in one area for a couple of years and then shift elsewhere. Not having the mobility for workers because they need to spend 2000 euros to get a different certification to work in France instead of Germany is a huge issue. And that's where I think that there's really a lot of potential for AI to be leveraged here to Help recognize and validate the skills and qualifications that workers have to standardize how these skills are quantified and represented and so on. So I see it more as a tool to help ease the skilling burden of the energy transition and less so as a threat to the jobs being created.
0: And needing to have alignment across... Countries. I mean, this is a global initiative, so it helps that maybe the transferability across borders, whether it's state borders or country borders, with countries aligned, governments aligned, may help ease those restrictions that were a little bit more burdensome in the past.
1: Precisely. I think that can be huge. You know, the oil and gas workforce is really highly sought after across industries, not just even in energy, you know, in tech and chemicals and a large reason why is that they're highly mobile. highly skilled a lot of other energy workers are also highly skilled but the different credential requirements certification schemes across different areas make it really hard in some cases if uh, you're not certified under a certain country's certification scheme the clean energy installation won't be eligible for incentives so it's really an area that i think we could use a lot of work to establish a sort of consistent, coherent skills framework across regions, across industries as well.
0: And technology in general, you know, over the years has continued to be a bigger part of companies operating in various industries, right? Uh, The energy transition obviously is heavily technology focused. And you look at your pure legacy technology companies, it's very, very fast paced. It's constantly changing. You go something three years and that technology is outdated with something new. And so with this big, like I said, gold rush with technologies developed for the energy transition, Do you see any challenges with reskilling the labor force to focus on energy transition with the energy transition is continuing to change at probably a more rapid pace than we've seen across the board in any industry historically?
1: Definitely. As I mentioned before, it's obviously a problem when you have new emerging industries, hydrogen, for example, where you need to build up a workforce almost simultaneously as you evolve the technology and build out infrastructure. And somewhere where we see this really creating an issue is in training capacity. A lot of jobs in energy require very specific and at times onerous training because they have safety requirements. It's dangerous to work with hydrogen. It's dangerous to work with refrigerants and heat pumps. It's dangerous to be working a thousand feet up on a wind turbine in the middle of the ocean. And in many of these cases, there's just not the training capacity that's sufficient to quickly train the scores of people that we need to be adding every year. There are some opportunities emerging for AI and other digital innovative processes, technologies like virtual and augmented reality to help fill in the gaps in the training landscape. For example, we're seeing companies who are combining AI with these technologies in order to create immersive training programs. And I think this is one of the areas with the greatest potential for these innovative technologies to really have a concrete positive effect on the energy transition. There's just not enough people available to train the constantly growing number of workers moving into the sector. And incorporating these innovative technologies can really allow for a much more practical and effective training experience than one might otherwise get from a digital or virtual online training course.
0: And do you think we have the policies, the incentives, what we need in place now to meet the demand based on what we're seeing on job growth in the next, call it 10 to 20 years. Now, are we going to find ourselves in a shortfall in the next few years where it's going to be a little bit more of a mad dash to try to get stuff in place? And kind of my question going back to really, if that's not the case, if we don't have it in place now, what can we do to help get in front of this and not find ourselves in a drought that takes a couple of years to get out of?
1: I think probably one of the most important things, besides, as I said, putting in place the clear policy that signals You can move into this space. I do think we are facing a very worrisome future if we don't act now. Fortunately, I think um, people are beginning to realize this and act. Labor shortages are really moving into the more mainstream conversation around energy. But I think one of the most important institutions to enabling the build out of a skilled pipeline of workers for the energy transition is vocational education and training. This is something that's a big difference between the U.S. and Europe when it comes to preparing people to work with clean energies and technologies. Most of the prominent energy-related skilled labor shortages in these regions are in vocational roles, or what we might call trades roles, blue-collar jobs, etc. Overall, we estimate that over half of the global energy workforce today is in this so-called medium-skilled journeyman category, and over half of the jobs that are going to be created through 2030 will also be in this category that generally requires some degree of vocational education and training. And that obviously varies significantly across regions with its prevalence. Many European countries, for example, have very well-established and well-structured VET, vocational education and training, integrated into their broader education systems, generally beginning at the secondary or high school level. And it's widely considered a viable alternative to traditional higher education. Similarly, apprenticeships for vocational occupations, like heating techs or welders, are relatively commonplace. And we see some countries, Germany, Switzerland, have this really great dual education model where apprenticeships are carried out simultaneously with classroom learning, which allows for a really great direct transition into the energy workforce. In addition, the apprenticeship model contributes to a closer link between education and industry, allowing greater collaboration and allowing it to be more dynamic, which harkens back to what you said earlier. If the technologies are constantly changing, how can we develop these skills? Well, you need a really close link between the education institutes, the training institutes and industry that's actually evolving these technologies. On the contrary, the VET system in the U.S. is much more fragmented and not very integrated into the general education system. We don't really have widespread secondary vocational education at the high school level, and tertiary vocational education is often relegated to community colleges. I think in the U.S. this is really troubling because it's contributed to a damaged perception of vocational education. People think that it's just for students that can't cut it at academic higher education institutions or that it limits your career or earning potential. And all of that is just blatantly false. And I think one of the most damaging things for building out this pipeline of skilled workers that we're trying to cultivate. Unfortunately, the stigma persists despite the fact that these occupations are already in high demand. They're going to be the most demanded as the energy transition progresses. And as a result, they tend to offer excellent wages and a fair degree of personal freedom. And in the U.S., they tend to be associated with union benefits. This is, however, something that I think the U.S. has recently caught on to as a barrier to delivering a skilled workforce for the energy transition, and we're seeing notable effects to remedy it. The Inflation Reduction Act in particular includes several notable provisions that will give a huge boost to workforce development by attaching apprenticeship requirements to tax credit incentives associated with clean energy projects and some manufacturing projects. This basically means that a certain percentage of the total hours worked on a clean energy construction project must be performed by apprentices in order to receive government incentives. That's an excellent move to help cultivate a pipeline of qualified skilled workers. Other countries, like I said, Europe has a greater integration of VET. And countries like China, for example, have a much higher degree of students participating in vocational education. That being said, in every major region that I've looked at that publishes vocational education data, it has been dropping for years in fields relevant to energy. So even in places where vocational education is more prominent, we really need to see a revival in this space in order to build the skilled workforce for the energy transition. Not least because, as I mentioned earlier, someone who's already a plumber can become a heat pump engineer in a week. And if I wanted to become a heat pump engineer, it would take four years.
0: And that's key because, I mean, the vast majority are for the energy transition, clean energy, but it also comes down to cost, right? And so the concern I have about further delaying the energy transition is one, you find yourself with a dearth of skilled labor, which obviously is going to impact the rollout. But what happens when you have that need is then you have to pay more to get people incentivized over there. And what that's going to do is create a higher cost to the energy transition and a slower adoption because it's a cost-effective alternative. So you have both those in play that could just keep pushing it out because it's one problem solved, but you're not solving for both of those problems today because they're both out there on the horizon.
1: Definitely. I mean, there's long been a conversation that the longer we delay the energy transition, the more expensive it's going to be from the perspective of emissions, from the perspective of quickly delivering clean energy installations. But it's not something that's often talked about with education and training. And really, you don't have the capacity to train a million people all at once from nothing. You need to start now and build it gradually. And hopefully that's something that we're seeing governments start to catch on to. And I hope that the situation will continue to ameliorate because we're definitely already starting to see skilled labor shortages impacting the delivery of clean energy projects. And it will only continue unless urgent action is taken against it.
0: And so when you look across the job growth and opportunities, you know, across the entire energy transition spectrum, what verticals within that are you seeing with the most job growth or opportunities available?
1: So how many jobs the energy transition will create in the future obviously depends on the policies enacted and the timeline that we're discussing. If we take the World Energy Employment Report, the IEA runs a couple scenarios. The stated policy scenario is based on current policies, meaning actual policies that are in law today, not including, you know, net zero targets and goals that countries may have stated but don't have any actual policy to back them up. In that scenario, we estimate that worldwide 5.7 million net jobs will be created by 2030 because of current policies that are in place to support the energy transition. In a more extreme scenario where we reach net zero carbon dioxide emissions by 2050 worldwide, we'd be adding around 17 million net jobs by 2030. But in any case, the job creation associated with clean energy technologies is going to outweigh job losses in fossil fuels and related industries through the end of the decade. What industries we see that in is obviously going to depend massively on what choices are taken, We can take hydrogen as an example. Today, we don't see a lot of policies in place that are going to create a huge boom in hydrogen employment in the next decade. But if we see countries really starting to put action behind their net zero goals, especially those that have hydrogen as part of them, we'll be adding millions of hydrogen jobs by the end of the decade. So it's really hard to single out specific industries. I can say that two that we know for sure are seeing massive growth already and are likely to continue to do so are. Solar PV and electric vehicles are already accounting for a huge portion of the clean energy job growth and are likely to continue to do so.
0: And regionally speaking, what countries or regions do you see the majority of that growth coming from?
1: Well, unsurprisingly, a lot of the job growth is going to be in countries that are already the biggest countries today. Already today, we can see that China accounts for around 30 percent of energy employment. And the share is probably going to remain pretty stable as they add a huge number of jobs through the end of the decade. We're also going to see an increasing number of jobs added in countries where they're building out energy infrastructure. So a lot of countries in Africa that are still focused on establishing clean cooking and electricity access. We're obviously seeing a huge number of jobs in the future in transmission and distribution, power generation. But that's not to say that there won't be jobs in advanced economies as well. I think both the U.S. and Europe are likely to see really significant growth in build out of clean energy installations, building wind turbines, solar farms, et cetera, wherever it may be, is going to create a huge number of jobs because these are really labor intensive tasks that can't be relegated away by automation or similar, which we see kind of impeding the growth in manufacturing.
0: Are there any other barriers or things that should be taken into account as we consider this initiative on the skilled labor force?
1: I think it's important to note that we really can't relegate this just to governments, just to energy workers, just to companies, just to education. It's really going to involve a collaboration between all of them. And most importantly, it's going to need to involve energy workers right in the center of the conversation. We really need to make sure that the transition remains People centered and that the energy workers are at the heart of it if we want it to be a successful clean energy transition for all, which obviously is what we want. We're going to need education and industry to work closer together. We're going to need a closer relationship between educational institutions and industry to allow us to build a more dynamic and flexible workforce. We're going to need energy companies to increase on-the-job training to do their part in stepping it up. And above all, I think we really need to see a lot of political will put behind this cause. Luckily, that's something that governments are doing, not least because they want to secure their section of the clean energy supply chain. So we don't need completely altruistic motives on the part of government. There's plenty of domestic benefits to trying to build out your energy workforce besides the fact that climate change and not having a significant energy workforce is going to cost them.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, you've got clearly the government policy is going to be key. It can be a barrier, but it's also what's needed to help drive things forward. The education system as well, you need to have these in place for people that are new to the workforce to take advantage of the opportunities. But on the companies themselves, there's a number of companies out there looking and asking themselves, how can I take advantage of the energy transition? How can I adjust my business to continue to be a going concern throughout this? And it's not just entering into new areas of business or opportunities and hiring new workforce there, it's actually investing in your current workforce to make that adjustment along with the company itself.
1: I think that's an excellent point. We mentioned how oil and gas companies are having trouble sort of retaining workers. A strategy a lot of them have been taking in order to try to fix this outflow of their staff is obviously not just raising wages, which is the go-to. And for a reason, it's very successful in attracting and maintaining staff. But we're seeing different strategies diversifying across industries, as you said, and really listening to their employees about what they're interested in working on and making sure there's opportunities for career progression within companies. That's really something that's important. And it's something that the renewables industry needs to take note of. They're doing well, but as I said, they're not offering, they don't have wage premiums currently compared to a lot of established fossil fuel industries. And if you don't have a wage premium and you don't have an opportunity for career progression, it's going to be difficult to maintain what workers you have and attract the new ones that you need.
0: Exactly. Couldn't agree more. Well, Kaylee, listen, I appreciate you joining us today. It's a very interesting topic. And once again, just another piece of the energy transition that sometimes doesn't get a focus, but really is a critical piece to number one, the journey on the energy transition, but even trying to come close to the goals that we have set for ourselves. So thanks for joining us today. Thanks, David. I'm really glad to
1: have the opportunity to talk about it. At the end of the day, it's not governments or companies that are delivering the energy transition. It's the tens of millions of workers who are installing the solar panels and fabricating the heat pumps and assembling the EVs. So I'm glad we have the opportunity to highlight them today and talk about what an important role it's going to play in the energy transition.
0: Exactly, thank you. Thanks so much. The Interchange is a Wood Mackenzie production. We'll be releasing the show every second Tuesday, so mark your diaries and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm David Miller. It's been a pleasure joining you. See you next time.